Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the first one of 2022. We hope you all had a terrific New Year's break uh, and are ready and jumping back into the flow of things here in a new year. We definitely are and glad to have you along for that. I am Kevin McDonald, your host and an executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. As always, this is a great opportunity for us to bring you some of the great interviews and discussions from our show uh, and also give you some extra as well. And we plan to do that here in this episode, which is going to be entirely line focused. Again, if you don't know, the line is our weekly opinion roundtable segment virtual right now. Normally we have four guests along with host Gene Grant, but in Zoom world, we find it works better with three and thrilled with our three guests this week. It's Serge Martinez, one of our regulars and a UNM law professor. Also, Inez Russell Gomez, the editorial page publisher at the Santa Fe New Mexican. And we welcome back Rebecca Latham, CEO of the Girl Scouts of New Mexico. Got a lot of great things to say this week. We want to dive right into it. First up, the topic Always, it seems, the topic, but we have seen a huge spike in cases here in New Mexico as uh, with the rest of the country with the Omicron variant of COVID-19. Good news in a health department update this week. It is not as serious. It seems to be milder, at least in terms of the symptoms of the Omicron variant. But as we mentioned, cases uh, are on the way up. Hospitalizations seem to be holding pretty steady, another sign of the milder uh, symptoms from this. Uh, Lots of movement on this and one of the big concerns around testing with shortage of supplies there, uh, or at least can be hard to find. Uh, So also the return to school this semester uh, for students. And in many cases, as you'll hear some of our line panelists also talk about, school can actually be one of the safer places. So most school districts starting off in person again, but planning for contingencies if things uh, go the wrong way. So let's jump right into our conversation with the line opinion panel and host Gene Grant about Omicron and COVID-19. We'll be watching all of those new developing stories throughout the new year, but unfortunately another story we're all too familiar with is stealing the spotlight again. COVID-19 cases are surging around the U.S. as well as here in New Mexico. According to the latest briefing from the state health department, there is some good news. Hospitalizations from the virus have fallen since the peak at more than 700 in the middle of last month. So let's bring in our line opinion panelists. Welcome to UNM Law Professor Serge Martinez. Always good to have Serge. Girl Scouts of New Mexico CEO Rebecca Latham, one of our newer panelists, is with us. Always good to have Rebecca. And editorial page editor at the Santa Fe New Mexican, Inez Russell-Gomez, joins us as well. Thank you all. Now, health experts say the new variant driving these cases is milder than any strain of the virus to this point. But guys, how do we balance that positive with the reality some healthcare workers, particularly those in the ICU, are still facing each day? And Rebecca, let me throw that to you. Uh, You know, I... Honestly, Gene, I don't have an answer for it. Yeah. I don't think anybody has an answer for it. Because if we didn't, then we, then we, you know, we'd be doing it. It really is, it's such a tragic situation because, you know, personally for me, I'm all the, I'm all the vaccine, right? Mm-hmm. Like I've got all the vaccines and, and, and my children are vaccinated and it's something that we believe in strongly. And yet I know very educated people who, who, who opt to get all the vaccines, all the other ones, and not this one. And, right. and it's like, and you really have to think about that. It's fear that's driving that. Mm-hmm. But that fear puts us in such a bad position with our very limited resources. New Mexico was in a bad position with healthcare workers before the global pandemic. Yeah. So I, I really, I don't know where, where, where success is with this or what we're going to do about it. Because I, I just, I feel like the people who have not seen the light yet to be vaccinated, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what hope we have for them. Mm-hmm. You know, Inez, the, the data released by the state health department on Wednesday shows Omicron spreads at a rate three times higher than the Delta variant, which had been, you know, the most transmissible as we knew. But the good news is unlike Delta, early data shows hospitalizations are likely to fall as Omicron spreads because it's more mild. At what point do we begin to reframe what it means to contract the virus? Is it uh, too early to say at this point? I think it is too early to say because Mm -hmm. 
I think there's an understanding that COVID is going to be something that we live with, which means, of course, that we can't have permanent lockdowns. We can't be closing restaurants or schools and those kinds of things. But at the same time, because it mutates and changes, mm -hmm. there is great interest uh, in stopping the spread um, as much as we can because Delta didn't spread that quickly, but it was fairly deadly. Right. Omicron spreads quickly. It's not that deadly. What I'm afraid of is a variant that spreads quickly and kills. Mm -hmm. And I would like to see that not happen. So I think we have to keep persuading, not shaming, but persuading people to get vaccinated, you know, beg them if we have to, you know, maybe nurses who work in the ICU can can make more pleas or something, mm -hmm. because if we get vaccinated, we're OK. We've shown that over and over again, 80 percent of the hospitalizations or so are people who are unvaccinated. The deaths are people who are unvaccinated. Mm -hmm. We've just got to stick to the facts and persuade our neighbors even if they won't see the light, just keep it up. Mm -hmm. You know, Serge, several employers and organizations now requiring boosters as a condition of employment. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of interesting. I want to mention something about what's happening in Europe right after this as well. But this should, be, should this be adopted on a wider scale? I say absolutely, right? My employer has required it. Okay. Um, uh, I certainly didn't have a problem with it, but I think the, you know, as Inez was saying, right, you know, carrots don't work, sticks, then, then you, you know, bring in the stick, I guess. Um, and but, but is it that easy? I mean, we, we've got you know. we've got hospitals now firing huge amounts of people who refuse. I mean, these are healthcare workers, not yeah. construction people. These are healthcare workers who are now out of a job because they refuse to get either vaccinated or boosted. They should know more than anybody of the efficacy of doing this. So how do we convince other people that they need to do this? Yeah, Dean, I'm completely unsympathetic here. Um, I think, nice. you know, if, if, as a, if it's a condition of your employment to do this, yeah. and we, the society, say this is a public good and we want to incentivize people to participate in that public good, mm -hmm. then you're, you can, fine, make a choice, but you can't then complain about, you know, the consequences of that choice. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the, as Ines was saying, you know, how do you get through to people? At, at some point you just can't, which is fine. But then we need to just say, this person has made a conscious choice to, to, you know, to be on the receiving end of the impact and and feel the repercussions of that choice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the people who are doing that, that are keeping my kids from being able to, you know, do some of the things they're trying to do that are sending people to the, to the hospital that are, causing it so folks who have other conditions can't get into the hospital because they're full of people mm -hmm. with COVID. I have, I'm, I mean, I'm just completely unsympathetic mm -hmm. to folks who choose to perpetuate that. I hear you. Uh, you know, Rebecca, it's interesting. The health department data shows only 17% of kids age five to 11 have gotten both of their primary vaccinations. Should we be doing, is that the end of it we should be concentrating on is kids and their parents? You know, I I think it's 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 parents in general, but going back to what Inez and Serge said, it's it's really kind of understanding the root reason of why people are not choosing to get vaccinated. And and for me, mm -hmm. you know, like we, I don't think it's that people don't believe in science. I think it's that people are again, it's these their decision is rooted in fear. Like this was rushed, and it doesn't mean you know my family again. We have chosen to be vaccinated, boosted. It doesn't mean that um that they that that people don't believe in science it's it's that they're afraid that this science wasn't thoroughly vetted right and you know in neuroscience we know that that the brain will connect dots that aren't necessarily there and so we have this narrative being driven by fear again that um that's you know making people think that if they vaccinate their children that something horrible is going to happen down the line or that they just don't know so how do we persuade them we've got to get more back into like the root cause of what they what they believe and or what it is that why aren't they mm -hmm. uh, vaccinating their children um it, it, as a as a parent of kids in elementary and middle school we're getting notifications two to three times a week that right. there's been another COVID positive case. And it's it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And again, these are still primarily Delta. So once Omicron hits, it's 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 we can't get rid of it. Mm -hmm. So I think we just I think our best bet is to like tackle the psychology behind 
you know, what's driving these decisions to not not vaccinate your children or not vaccinate yourself mm -hmm. and, and try and take a stab at it that way. You know, um, interesting ideas when you think about how one does this to either incentivize folks to do something and take a step forward. I can't help but note what's been going on in Europe. You know, we've got a big tennis star that was just booted out of Australia because he's unvaccinated. <laughs> we've got the president of France saying, you know what we're going to do? We're going to turn the screws on the unvaccinated and make it so difficult for them. They will have no choice but to get vaccinated because they're not going to be allowed into anything. Italy just laid down the law that starting, I think, in February, it's going to have to be required to get vaccinated. Is that the best way to go is just drop the hammer on people here and just say you're going to lose out if you if you cannot show a vaccination card? I don't know if it's the best way, but it might mm -hmm. be a necessary way. You know, I'm I'm with Serge in that I don't have a whole lot of sympathy in the sense that mm -hmm. If you don't believe the science of vaccinations, it makes no sense to me that you then go to the hospital to believe the science of those doctors and nurses working overtime to save your life. Thank you. None of this makes any sense. Um, I think in a free country, you can't, you know, track people down and vaccinate them like you would a, a horse or a cow, right. you know, against their will. But you can say we have to protect ourselves and we're going to isolate you until you change your mind. You know, I still prefer almost the one-on-one, -on -one, just go door to door and talk to people and hear their fears, mm -hmm. because I think that may be the way to get through the people who aren't so politicized, but maybe just are afraid or scared, mm -hmm. you know, or even people who don't trust medicine because their group was experimented on. You know, there's different mm -hmm. reasons for not getting mm -hmm. vaccinated. And we've got to concentrate on protecting as many people as possible so we don't collapse our healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Serge, I gotta go back to schools here for a little bit um, just to finish up here because it's important for our viewers. How are they supposed to, you know, I heard Rebecca's point loud and clear here, but how are schools supposed to react to the mixed bag of data coming from Omicron? Are the risks too great to loosen protocols at this point or are, are we on the right track? What's your sense of it? Well, I mean, you know, I have, Two kids who are in APS, and we, you know, watch this are, uh, unfolding in real time as well. Like uh, Rebecca was saying, I think, you know, what we do know is, in terms of the risk to kids of of the virus, it's you know statistically pretty low. Mm -hmm. The risk to kids of not being in school and the the negative, you know, consequences of that, we know that those are pretty high. So I think erring on the side of doing everything we can to keep schools open available you know so kids can come and mm -hmm. and be educated and you know and hang out with their peers and all the things that go with that you know we here at the law school we've seen tremendous mental health as well as physical well-being you know challenges for, throughout the pandemic we know the consequences um that you know of not being around not being here um at the law school but all the way you know certainly way down to the grade school level mm -hmm. and so i'm it, it is complicated. There's no doubt about it. There's no single, you know, this is the right answer. But I do think erring on the side of trying to do everything possible so the kids can be at school is the right answer. Mm -hmm. Rebecca, we'll finish with you again. You're a parent. Uh, what do you want to say to parents out there when it comes to their kids in school and everything else? You know, we got to get this idea that we're all connected across, you know? I, I think, you know, I would just, I, I love what Inez said, going back to the one-on-one -on -one approach and really trying to talk to it, you know, um, and I, I am 1000% behind surge. Like we've got to keep the schools open mm -hmm. to, to the best we can. I'm so glad that the public education department and, and our largest system, APS, that they're both, you know, putting out plans to how do we keep kids in school and how do we minimize the, um, how do we minimize having to close? Um, I will just, I know that I am just continuing to, you know, to take that approach, the one-on-one -on -one approach. And um, other than that, I don't know what else we can do. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's gonna, it's, it's happening. And, you know, I think we all just need to buckle up and, and pray that our kids remain safe and healthy and healthy in mental health and well-being means being in the classroom. Good points there. Thank you guys for all of that. If you haven't gotten a vaccine or a booster yet, you can find out where to get one at on the state health department's website. We'll be back with the line in just a moment with their thoughts on what's been a record setting year for crime in our state's largest city.
We're just days away now from the start of another legislative session. Of course, we just got out of the special session in December on redistricting and news coming out this week. The governor has put pen to paper to sign the last of the remaining redistricting maps, that being the state Senate uh, map. And so that is a wrap, unless there are any court challenges to any of that. But uh, it is a 30-day session coming up. It starts on January 18th, and you can tune in here on New Mexico in focus for the state of the state. Seems to be a bit in flux still, but looks like it will happen on the 18th. Uh, A lot of virtual there. Reminder that you have to have proof of vaccine to get into the roundhouse during the session. Also, the new firearms ban, so plan to... Uh, spend a little more time getting into the roundhouse with the metal detectors and all of that. One of the things we know uh, is that a 30-day session is supposed to be focused on the budget. It will be again this year, constitutionally mandated, but there will be other things on the docket as well. One thing that seems pretty clear are a slew of bills to deal with crime. Albuquerque, again, if you haven't already seen, broke a record for the number of homicides in 2020, really 2021, uh, really shattered that record. And so there is a lot of focus on crime and trying to get a handle on that, especially in what is an important election year. And there are some of these proposals that have already sort of come out, and the line panel is going to dive into all that and see if these have substance or are just part of the bigger political machine, as we mentioned, in an election year. So let's dive right back into it with our line opinion panel. Looking ahead to the upcoming legislative session, crime is set to be a key issue for lawmakers. Early rumblings indicate growing bipartisan support for several proposals. We've told you about the proposal to make it more difficult for people charged in violent crimes to be released before their trial. Now, the governor has also floated the idea of a funding package to help the Albuquerque Police Department hire more officers. Now, will changes like this be enough, and will they get results fast enough? Serge Martinez, let me start with you. Um, Let me just put it this way. If you live in Albuquerque, I don't care where you are, you are no stranger to crime at this point. And at this point, perception is probably bigger than reality in some points, but reality is pretty lousy. (laughs) How should we at first be approaching this? What's our attitude that should be about crime here? Just anger or where should we be putting our emotions right now? Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I I live in Albuquerque and I'm certainly aware of the sort of the the zeitgeist uh, on this particular point. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we are seeing from the legislature the same response it's, it's, you know, how many times are going to have this exact same response? Oh, there's a perception and, you know, number, there's a lot of different uh, data that go into this, um, that crime is up. Therefore, our response is, let's talk about getting tough on crime, mm-hmm. right? And that response, I mean, how many times are we going to say, ooh, here's the, pro- here's the same problem. Let's try the same thing, but, you know, harder this time. And, and then be surprised when things don't change. I think, you know, it is... Um, unfortunate that we seem to just have tunnel vision when it comes to this and say, Mm -hmm. we're just going to focus on, let's talk about severity of sentences, which we know is not a great deterrent of crime. Let's talk about, you know, the governor's proposal to make it harder for folks to get out of pretrial detention is turned on its head, right? It makes, putting the burden on the folks who are in that situation means, guess who's going to be suffering the, the repercussions of that? The folks who can't afford lawyers. Right. And so once again, we've sort of said, let's try to make this system appear as tough without actually doing anything instead of focusing on things, you know, the systemic causes and systemic issues, affordable state housing stability, wages, um, you know, social services, public Mm -hmm. health, mental health services. These sorts of things are they're not as sexy or as exciting and don't make for good headlines. Mm -hmm. But so I think we should be attuned to uh, increasing crime, but make sure that our focus is not on something that is going to be flashy. And, you know, the one way ratchet of tough on crime is almost impossible to undo, although we have seen some strides in that recently as folks have come to their senses. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think taking a real rational look, I, it, I understand, right? It's it can be really scary mm-hmm. and cause people to to just want to focus on this thing right in front of them and something that seems like 
uh, you know, the reasonable response. But we know that that has not been a successful solution the other 50 times we've tried it. Interesting points there. We wouldn't there. be in it. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Rebecca, here's an interesting way to look at this. I had a conservative friend over the weekend tell me, we were talking about this, this upcoming session, how Democrats really want to get after crime. And his point was Democrats trying to get in front of this crime thing and show other people how to go is like butchers trying to show people how to be carpenters. It's just not their thing. And it just, it just, it, 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 the way he said it just cracked me up. I was like, okay, I see your point here, but someone has to do something. Is that legit? I mean, Democrats have not, if you really look at it, been the people to really put their heel down on crime and law enforcement, all that kind of a thing here. Is it credible to have them leading the charge here? You know, I think, I, I think that's a valid point. For um, for for me, I worked in the Martinez administration for nearly five years, mm -hmm. and I think there is definitely a part of this that I was like, oh oh now now it's important. Okay, right. I see what's happening. But um, I, I think what we really have to do is challenge our Republican lawmakers to get past that okay. because we all want the same thing, right? We all want a better New Mexico. So uh, when I when I read that um, Representatives Reem and Maestas were working together on a bill, I, I it was like, is hell freezing over? Right. Like it's incredible <laughs> that like that's the kind of bipartisanship that we need. Um, but you know, it is it does feel a little kind of um, insulting. And I think it was Brandt who brought that up, mm -hmm. like, um, you know, like, oh, so what you're saying now by having all these democratically sponsored bills, what you're saying now is that we were right all along, the, the conservatives right. were right all along that we should be doing it. Um, as far as overall, though, I think this is this is never going to be a linear solution. There's not, you know, like we can't eat this elephant one bite at a time. We have to have multiple people eating the elephant <laughs> from multiple angles. And so that addre the addressing of, you know, how are we best serving our constituency uh, who needs long-term help and assistance versus how are we best serving our constituency by by fighting and, and, and clamping down on some of the, the bigger issues. And we're going to have to come at it from different angles. That's a good point there too. Inez, interestingly, um, there's kind of a lack of specifics to this point. Early indications show bipartisan support though, as Rebecca just mentioned, for a crime crackdown of some sort. Republicans have long been known as the party of law and order, as we know. Will they be content to let Democrats take the lead on this, especially going into an election deal? I don't know if they're going to be content, but when you have a Democratic governor and Democratic majorities in both the House and the Senate, um, I don't know that you have much of a choice in who's taking the lead because they're going to be writing bills um, what I fear is, is along the lines of what Serge was saying, is that the solutions we're proposing haven't worked in the past and they won't work now. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm even less sexy than he is. I mean, obviously, you want long-term solutions like investments in education, investments in behavioral health, both of which are happening. But I want short, kind of medium-term uh, investments that are very boring. If you're going to hire more police officers, then you have to hire more public defenders. You have to hire more prosecutors. You have to hire court clerks to enter the conviction so that when I get arrested for my fourth arrest, it shows that I have prior convictions and I can be sentenced mm -hmm. as a habitual offender. Mm -hmm. We have neglected the criminal justice system for so many years in so many ways that passing a bunch of laws and not having the people to prosecute, defend, or heck, take care of them in the jail if they're there, That's right. That's right. just makes a mess. So you have great headlines this session, and then what happens in a few years? And think about if they can amend the pre-trial detention, who's going to be watching those people in jails that are full of COVID and full of uh, people who seemingly are beating prisoners and otherwise mistreating them without supervision and are short-staffed. That's an I excellent point. I mean, is anybody point. looking at the big picture at all in this state? That's an excellent point. I hadn't really considered that. I appreciate you putting that on the table. Hey, Serge, Tuesday, the Albuquerque Journal had a very interesting editorial from the editorial board that read in part, let me read it to you, quote, it's time Keller and APD Police Chief Harold Medina get back to basics. Beefing up police presence has always been a tent pole of the mayor's crime-fighting agenda. But it needs results. Citizens want and need to see more officers on the streets restoring perceptions of a city rooted in law and order. Albuquerque, like the Rome of yesteryear, is burning. It's a very interesting little bit there. It, 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 what they're getting at here in the full, full sense of it is if people don't see police on the street, if they don't see ca police cars on the corners, 
if they don't see police cars during, you know, festivals of lights where, you know, toddlers are killed by people with, you know, side-by-sides racing up and down the street, you know, reaching back to systemic root causes is not going to get anybody anywhere on the perception deal. Are, are, are they right on this as they, as they propose it? Uh, yeah, I think there is actually some really interesting data out there that uh, some folks uh, have published in the last little bit about what happens when you incre- increase police presence. And mm-hmm. it's a little bit mixed. In some cases, it does reduce violent crimes. In some places, it doesn't. Right. Um, what it always does is increase the number of folks who are caught up in the system for what we might call quality of life crimes, right? And those are disproportionately going to be poor people, people who aren't white. And so increasing police presence may have this effect of, again, reducing um, the, the the violent crime, which is an unalloyed good thing. But if it's done without an eye to say, what are we focusing on? What are we doing this for? And it just ends up a bunch of folks getting, you know, poor folks getting tickets for public drinking, then, you know, the balance is is off on that, right? I think. Well, look, it, let me, let me challenge the, you there a bit, Serge. If it is about public drinking, I don't think that would last too long. But what if it is about rates of violent crime and other things dropping just a little bit? Would that not make the point that perhaps removing the people, because the administration always says it's a very small minority of people committing most of the crimes. That's right. always been a big thing for them. Why are mm. we not just locking up these people if that's the case? I hate to be so blunt about it, but it seems pretty pretty obvious yeah well so you know the the like i said the data seem to say that between 10 and 17 officers are equal one homicide right okay so it's hard to make a calculus on that right Mm -hmm. but that's in the places where it does have a difference um in some places surprisingly it seems like cities that have a large black population Mm -hmm. that you don't see that that difference no one can really explain the why and there's lots of different sources of data that i was looking at um but yeah the you know as i was saying before harsh sentences aren't the deterrent that we think they are certainty of apprehension is a real deterrent Ah. right and i think that's what happens when you see more police out there so i'm not going to argue that that is a bad thing what i am going to say is if we then say instead of focusing on these other things right that then get a criminal record for somebody who then has to you know it has trouble getting a job or mm-hmm. finding a place to live mm-hmm. but rather only focus on that but instead we have our police out there focusing on the big things but also smaller things doing you know enforcing speeding and whatnot right there are some cities that are experimenting with separating police from traffic enforcement. And I think these sorts of things, understanding what is it that the police are good at and what are they not good at, Mm -hmm. that really requires more than just saying, here's a lot of money, this will totally fix the problem. You know, Rebecca, we're just about to wrap up here. Are we asking too much of our law enforcement here? I mean, it just, you know, we can't recruit people. Uh, State police are down, I think 11% vacancy rate. Santa Fe, of course, where Inez is, same thing. It's really not, is it about funding or people just wanna do the dang job? I personally don't believe that there is uh, any dollar amount that's going to fix this problem. I don't think the governor's $100 million package to hire more police officers will do anything. I don't think a 5% raise, 10, 20, 50% raise for our law enforcement officers is going to do anything to retain them. I think, and we've talked about this before, I think it's cultural. Mm -hmm. And I do think that they've been put, uh, in the case of APD, I think they've been put in a near impossible situation where... Um, they've gotten the the feeling that their the administration doesn't back them up. The people don't always back them up. Mm-hmm. Their hands are tied with regards to the amount of paperwork that they're required to do to clear up old things. It's making it impossible for them to do their current job. And all of those um, all of those issues create a, a scenario in which nobody wants to be a cop anymore. You right. know, it, right. and the people who are doing it are doing it p- perhaps for the wrong reasons. And so I just I, I don't. I don't know what the answer is, again, but it's, I don't think it's money. I appreciate that last point there. It actually layers on the many layers of difficulty we're going to face here with this issue. Thank you all. All right, the legislative session begins at noon on January 18th. Be sure to watch the Governor's State of the State Address live right here on New Mexico PBS. Going to stay on the legislative uh, angle here with the line opinion panel. An issue we always find very important here 
on New Mexico in focus is good government and transparency issues. And the State Ethics Commission, only been around for a couple years now, is uh, making a strong push for stronger financial disclosure rules for state lawmakers uh, in terms of knowing what potential conflicts of interest might be. And this, of course, spurred by the scandal last year involving former Lawmaker Cheryl Williams Stapleton, she has resigned, although she has stood by her innocence in terms of funneling money in her role with Albuquerque Public Schools into charities and businesses under her name. That all will play out in the courts. But as we mentioned, she did resign from the legislature, but it put renewed focus on the lawmakers and their financial interests and how that might affect their ability to legislate. And so that's where this push comes from. Some back and forth here, really good uh, thoughts from the line opinion panelists about not the idea of whether or not it's a good idea to identify potential conflicts of interest, but whether or not this particular proposal is the right, right way to go. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well. Of course, lawmakers will have to take this up in the session as well. Uh, it might even be next year when there's a 60-day session and room for other uh, topics as well. But what do you think about this plan and the need for more disclosure from lawmakers? Right now, let's hear what the line panel has to say about that. Here's host Gene Grant. A state commission wants to make financial interests in the roundhouse more transparent. The State Ethics Commission is calling for stricter rules when it comes to financial disclosures for state lawmakers. The commission calls the current law, quote, vague and undemanding, end quote. Interesting word there, undemanding. It wants to require more detailed reports on income and financial interests, saying that would deter corruption and increase transparency. Now, given last year's resignation from House Speaker Cheryl Williams Stapleton amidst allegations she misused her position with APS, are these necessary, Rebecca Latham, are these necessary changes as you see them? And when you read that Disclosure Act as it's proposed, it feels way overboard. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, getting down to like reporting gifts that your children receive. And I, I, I'm fully in favor of more transparency. Right. Um, I think we all want a more transparent government, but this just feels really burdensome. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's interesting that like the state wants to know everything about your money, but they're not prepared to give you uh, an, an honest income, right? These elected right. officials are not receiving, <laughs> they're not receiving I money. I love that. <laughs> so, it, you know, I think it could be, I worry, mm -hmm. while we love transparency, I worry that this could be a deterrent for some really great potential public servants. And do we really want to make it harder to find quality candidates? I don't, yeah. I don't think so. Let me let the folks know what Rebecca's getting at here, because I think she's onto something interesting. The new Disclosure Act proposed by the commission would outline detailed requirements for the disclosure of personal assets, debts, sources of family income over $600, uh, including earnings by spouses, independent children, and property ownership. And Serge, I gotta ask you a question. If your oldest kid had a good month with their Poshmark and they made <laughs> 900 bucks, why is that Santa Fe's business? Uh, well, that seems like a far-fetched hypothetical, but I'll allow it. I, um, I think I, time out, time out. A Poshmark or a Mercury account making 800 bucks is far from far-fetched. Oh, sorry. I meant as applied to my children. But, oh, gotcha. Um, <laughs> they wear hoodies at all times. Gotcha. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it is. It's it's intrusive. It's, it's probably overkill. It's probably what we're seeing is the sort of classic, well, let's, you know, make sure we're responding to the last thing that happened, mm -hmm. right? As someone someone d described it as scandal first, law second, right? And then we try to fix that last thing that just happened and sort of an over over correction, right, to all the stuff that we've seen recently. But mm -hmm. I mean, I I will go off on a slight tangent here. Um, you've heard me complain before about our legislative setup here. Mm -hmm. We are. I mean, when you have an unpaid legislature, right, who have to have jobs to support themselves, you're asking for setups that are going to lead to conflicts. And that is part of, you know, what is going to be driving things like these over possibly overreaching ethics rules, right? You're when they're sitting up in Santa Fe in the roundhouse that's awash with lobbying money, and we know that they're not getting paid, you know, the perception is 
almost certainly going to be, well, who wouldn't be tempted to, you know, to have conflicts right. and, and whatnot. So I think, you know, this underscores this problem that I have hammered home repeatedly that our, we have got to get a better legislative setup. Right. And that right. wouldn't, I mean, it's not that other legislatures do not have ethical scandals, obviously, those come with the territory, but we have a particular type of issue here that we are setting ourselves up for and trying to micromanage the finances of, of someone's family is a response to that. But the real response, I think the best, better response is to step back and say, okay, wait a second, Let, how do we set up a system that is not going to lead to the sort of these built-in conflicts? Mm -hmm. Good point there. Inez, we're going to get around here, as Serge just uh, mentioned about full or part-time legislatures, all that kind of thing. But i got to go back to my example that Rebecca brought up about intrusiveness in this $600 threshold. Where do things, things like that come from? Are they rooted in some kind of reality? I mean, is this the problem when you have committees looking at how people work? Because i got to tell you something. Money comes into families through many odd routes. And, and to build a narrative about how your family income works through your kids' stuff, your wife's stuff, whatever, I just can't see people really getting warm to that. I really can't. There's something almost intrusive about it, laying out your family financial map and how money comes in from all these weird directions. What, is this going to work in Santa Fe for people that live in Santa Fe that have to work up there? You know, it's intrusive, but you know, you, you're choosing to run. You're choosing to be an elected official and you're choosing to be married to a lobbyist, for example, who then is mm -hmm. going to lobby you on bills that you vote on. And most of the legislators do not recuse themselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a reason that sometimes you go too far in writing a proposal because maybe they know the kids and the $600 are going to get thrown off, but we might get to keep finding out what the spouses are doing. Because there really is, I think, a question uh, about spousal income that does affect how legislators operate and how they vote. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the scandals is that, that we've had, let me, you ask, know, let me ask you this. Is that not a reasonable place to start and throw, instead of throwing this blanket net of $600 and asking if your you know, good-for-nothing brother-in-law finally paid you that 1500 bucks for that trailer, that you got to suddenly report this? I mean, I just... What does that actually show when it comes? I, you know, I, I think they must have more thinking. I'm going to have to go ask them what they were thinking. But knowing, think about the different legislators who've had kids who have worked at the legislature, who have then influenced their dads or their moms. There's probably something here that we don't know. Mm -hmm. And it may be overreaching, but we've underreached for so many years. Maybe we should overreach for a little bit. Uh, this is... I agree with Serge and we've written about it in our paper. You know, we need to go beyond a citizen legislature. We need to pay people for doing work. Mm -hmm. We need to remove the potential for temptation and conflict. And we need to watch people more. I mean, who was watching Cheryl Staples Williamson uh, Good point. over Good point. those years, mm -hmm. whether at the school district or at, you know, the ethics or at the legislature, mm -hmm. we need to do better. And maybe for a while, legislators are going to stand naked before us and all their finances to get where we need to get. Mm -hmm. Serge, additionally, disclosure requirements cover membership in corporations and nonprofit groups, gifts of $50 or more from lobbyists and work done by an official or their spouse involving public agencies. Um, you know, that's okay. I can, I can see that. But gifts of 50 I mean, it sounds like something, an answer from out of the 80s. I mean, I, you know, I just... <laughs> And I know this has a way to go. This is the reason we have committees. We, you know what I mean? So I'm not mm -hmm. saying this is the final, final thing. But again, right. is, is this going to do anything, disclosing membership in corporations and nonprofit groups? I, I just don't see the trail I, here. I mean, I think, you know, some of this is obviously symbolic and maybe is, will shape certain folks' behavior or you know, mm -hmm. think, think about what, they're, what they might be doing um, to inform. This is the standard that we're, that we're trying to hold you to rather than you know, we're going to go in and investigate every single little aspect of your life. I did, there is, there has been, I've seen some suggestions that the more of these rules that you get, the less trust people have in government because they're like, well, there must be a lot of shadiness going on if they have to legislate it down to this particular level. I suppose that's a possible risk. I mean, I'm, a, I am in favor of well-crafted and thoughtful rules. Mm -hmm. I think 
as you're pointing out, right, well-crafted and thoughtful sounds great, but you have to put a number on a piece of paper. Right. Um, and and the source of that, $50 seems low to me, but I, I actually don't get that many gifts at all, so I don't know how, <laughs> how to value them. I hear that. Hey, Rebecca, real quick, the Ethics Commission is also calling for an amendment to the Lobbyist Regulation Act. Now, this is interesting. It wants to bar former statewide elected officials from being paid as lobbyists for two full years after leaving office. This is not a new idea, even at the federal level. Will that help limit special interest control in the, right, in the roundhouse, doing it that way? I think it's such a systemic problem that nothing will limit special interest control. Um, I don't know that, that that's I don't know. I, I think it's a great idea, a great thought. I certainly have seen my share of colleagues who, who transitioned immediately into lobbying. Right. Um, and I, I feel like, you know, this there's a step there. There's a point where you wonder, you know, are we going to go into contact tracing where anytime a lawmaker and a lobbyist have, you know, passed or crossed paths in the grocery store aisle or then someone is alerted that they've been in the same place at the same time. You know, it's it's a it's a it's a terrible system it is a terrible system it's horribly flawed it has to be fixed um but i i don't you know i, I don't know that telling someone if you're going to retire from uh, being an elected official that that now but you can't a job that we haven't paid you for right. but now you can't go into another job that that where you could take what you've learned like we wouldn't do that in any other in any other career path and saying like you can't take what you've learned in this career and then parlay it into something better for yourself. Mm -hmm. So it just feels like that's that's um, overly burdensome. Good point there. Hey guys, in 2020, a report by New Mexico Ethics Watch, just to make Rebecca's point here, found that 34 ex-legislators worked as lobbyists and that another six lobbyists were spouses or relatives of legislators. And Inez, I think that sort of makes your point you were starting to make, uh, or you did make about uh, three or four minutes ago, isn't it? That it's, it's there's a lot, of, when you look in the nooks and crannies of who's doing what, it might look a little bit worse than we actually realize. <laughs> We're just a small state. And yeah. uh, if you're married to somebody, it's likely that they're going to affect what you do. And that works whether you're an editorial page editor or um, a legislator. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've gotten ugly postcards saying you can't write about Native Americans because you're married to one. And, you know, I am. So... It's all true, but mm -hmm. we all have conflicts. But the difference is, is I'm not writing laws that will necessarily enrich myself right. or my spouse or my child and legislators potentially can be. Mm -hmm. And I think taxpayers deserve to know their connections without being overly intrusive or burdensome on these wonderful citizens who are giving up their time and their livelihoods to work for us. Mm -hmm. Good stuff, good stuff there. Good, good discussion, guys, all the way around. I really like this. As always, this week, be sure to let us know what you think about any of the topics the line covered on our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages. And we often do this here on the podcast. It's a great opportunity, as we said, to bring you things that we just don't have time for in our broadcast. And one of the things we do with our line opinion panel to help them get warmed up uh, as well is a one more thing where they each take a crack at something else from the news that we're not going to have time for in the show. And so wanted to do that and bring that to you here. And it'll kick off with Serge Martinez and one of the big stories right out of the gate in 2022 and that is the raising of the minimum wage in New Mexico to 1150. This is part of a graduated raising of the minimum wage, which will culminate next year. But uh, a big step there, 1150 an hour for minimum wage in New Mexico, and lots of great other thoughts from the other line panelists as well. So let's dive right into it. I'm Gene Grant here in the studios of New Mexico PBS with our line opinion panelists joining me right there on Zoom. We're about to record this week's show, but before we do, we like to warm up by taking a turn at other issues that are on our minds, and we got a pretty killer panel right here. Serge Martinez, UNM law professor, let me start with you. What's your one more thing this week? Uh, hey, Gene. Hey there. Uh, I'm sure you heard um, this week the minimum wage in New Mexico went up to 1150 mm -hmm. statewide, a little bit higher in Santa Fe. And first of all, that's fantastic. I, I want to give a shout out to all the folks who worked hard to make that happen. Um, I also want to say it's a good start, but it's nowhere near enough, mm -hmm. right? Um, what will be enough it, in your view? What, what will be the proper line right now in this early 2022? Where would you personally love to see the minimum wage be at? Like 25. 
No kidding. Uh, okay. More than double, right? I mean, it's still the case that you can't afford if you 1150 at 40 hours a week for 52 weeks comes out to just below $24,000 a year, right? right? And a, a single parent, you know, trying to have a place to live, get their kids places, go to pay for gas, pay for food. Mm-hmm. $24,000 is still not, you know, you're not able to do that. Right. Um, and we've seen, you know, I've been on this, I've told, talked to you many times about unaffordability of housing and how hard it is to, mm-hmm. to find out to, to be able to pay for good, decent or any housing, frankly, um, mm-hmm. at those levels. And so I think we need to really look at what we're trying to do with the minimum wage and not say, oh, that's, you know, we'd say that's sort of a floor, but it really gets treated often as almost a ceiling right. and say, well, that's good enough for, for poor people. But if you're making that and that's your job and you're working 40 hours a week, you're poor. Mm-hmm. New Mexico. Good points there. When I catch up with you at some point, Serge, about housing, you mentioned here real quick, there's been obviously some movement locally, nationally, so we want to get with you in a couple of, couple of, a little bit of time here and see where we're at. So that'll be really great. Also with us, Rebecca Latham. She's the CEO of Girl Scouts of New Mexico. Always great to have you, Rebecca. What's your one more thing this week? One more thing I want to talk about this week is my favorite thing to talk about, New Mexico. So I was not born in New Mexico, but I married a New Mexican. I'm raising two New Mexicans, and I consider myself an adopted daughter of the state. And maybe that's why I love New Mexico so much, because everything that I could ever ask for is right here in the state. I was born and raised in Florida, and the closest thing that came to culture for me in my family was a love for Jimmy Buffett. Uh, But here we have this richness that's found nowhere else in the world. We're not divided by our ethnicity so much as we are united by our shared love for all things New Mexican, right? We all have Zia tattoos. Mm -hmm. We all love a lowrider. At Christmas, we all eat the same things. In the fall, we all proclaim our our love for the aroma of uh, roasting green chili. In October, we all get up and freeze our butts off before dawn to watch (laughs) balloons launch. Like, you know, we 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 have a lot to be to be thankful for. Year round, we all share our pictures of New Mexican sunsets, and we all post pictures of rain. We all love rain. Uh, we have 15 national parks and monuments in New Mexico that transcend just being pretty. National monuments in New Mexico uh, serve as a window to our past, a past that dates back far greater than the 110 years that we've been a state, mm-hmm. a past that is also very present today through the cultural heritage found in our in, in 23 tribes and pueblos uh, that we share land with. Um, parts of our past are painful. There are times of our present that uh, that feel doubtful, and God only knows what our future holds. But as we celebrate this week our statehood, um, I just encourage everybody to take a minute, breathe it all in, enjoy it, appreciate it. Uh, again, celebrate it, and happy birthday, New Mexico. That was wonderful. I absolutely adored that. Yay. Yay for us. We're an important state in this country, and we should celebrate that. Absolutely. Our We're contribution. Standing. Thank We're you. Still- that's that's enough. I'm with you, Rebecca Latham. I'm absolutely with him. Inez, yeah, I know you are too. You're a proud New Mexican. Inez Russell Gomez, she's the Santa Fe a New Mexican editorial page editor. What's your one more thing this week? Uh, my one more thing mm-hmm. almost was the birthday since we're filming it on the birthday, yep. but it wasn't. Um, but it really goes along with what Serge uh, had to say about the minimum wage. Today's New Mexican... Um, Look at this headline. Mm-hmm. The minimum Santa Fe house price is now, or the median Santa Fe house price is now five hundred thousand dollars. Wow! So, um, home affordability in my town is out of reach for many, many people, and it is something that we're going to have to work with the government, the private sector, and a lot of smart people to try to find a way that people can afford to live. Mm-hmm. Because if you can't buy a house, you probably can't rent a house either. Mm-hmm. You know, it goes all the way from the person renting a one bedroom or a studio to a person wanting to get their first house to raise their children. Right. And uh, and, and this has issues. I know you know this. So I'm not saying some of you don't know everybody, uh, certainly all three of you folks. But generational wealth and holding on to general generational wealth is so important for us here because it starts with the home and home ownership and land ownership. And once you take a generation out of that loop, it's awfully tough to come back. So I got to wonder, Inez, you know, is this a wake up call of some point, this threshold being crossed in your gut? Does this change the conversation in Santa Fe somehow? 
Santa Fe's conversation is always the same. It is the people who are really pushing to build more housing, more units for people to live mm -hmm. versus the people who say, well, we don't have water. It's ugly. It's stealing right. the soul. And I don't know that that's ever going to change. And, and there's the argument that if you have more places to live, that will eventually bring the prices down. And the people who are against growth say that that has not proved to be true in other cities. Um, I look at places like Los Angeles and San Francisco where NIMBYism worked to stop building any new housing and it's completely out of control. And what I'm hoping is that in Santa Fe, we can balance the need for housing with the need to maintain the historic nature of our city and really focus on letting, you know, I have a son who's 25. He can't afford to rent. He lives with us. And I would like to see him, you know, move out someday and and someday be able to buy a house and he wants to live here. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to focus on making a city where our children can grow and raise their children. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if we lose that, then we're really going to uh, be a lesser place. I couldn't agree more. It, it, it needs our attention. That's for sure. Thank you all for joining us. Um, you know, it, it, it's. It, it's, it's a fascinating thing. All three of your topics were amazing. I could carry on for an hour with them, but we can't. So I have to wrap it up there. Thanks for joining us. New Mexico in Focus airs Friday nights at 7, but also Sunday mornings right here on New Mexico PBS. Alrighty, that'll do it for this episode of New Mexico and Focus, the podcast. Again, I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at NMPBS. We thank you, as always, for taking us with you to the gym, on your walk, run, in the car. We really appreciate you listening. We also really appreciate it if you can leave us a review and share the word with other folks to subscribe to the podcast. It all really helps. Coming up on our next episode, a fascinating conversation, some behind the scenes from some of the people involved in that dramatic rescue on the Albuquerque tram, New Year's Eve into New Year's Day. You don't want to miss hearing how that all went down in some sketchy uh, weather circumstances for sure. Also want to share a full interview we did with Parker Williams. He's a bioclimatologist and a professor at UCLA. Spent a lot of time studying the uh, mega drought and fire worsening uh, wildfire risk uh, that is getting so dangerous here in the southwest especially as we saw evidenced here recently in boulder county colorado uh, boulder county colorado with the marshall fire that uh, devastated more than a thousand structures and it was in an area we're not used to it and fueled by extreme winds and parker talks a lot about all of those things in this interview so tune in for all of that in the meantime keep up with us on social media facebook youtube instagram and twitter just search for new mexico in focus and until next time stay safe stay healthy <music>